0: Have you heard what's happening in Calgary, Canada? Home to some of the world's best researchers and innovators in life sciences, Calgary is advancing healthcare solutions to solve global challenges. Calgary's dedication to the life sciences sector is evident in its labs, hospitals, schools, and the minds of its people. With its top institutions producing internationally recognized research and more than 110 life science companies backed by a highly skilled pool of talent, the life sciences sector is accelerating innovation in Calgary. If you're a bright mind or a bright company, Calgary is just the place for you. Take a closer look at calgarylifesciences.com. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BioReport. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E, dot com, forward slash podcast, and the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the BIO Report. The World Health Organization estimates that 270 million people worldwide suffer from chronic hepatitis B virus infections, making it a global epidemic that affects more than twice the number of people with hepatitis C or HIV combined. HBV is a leading cause of chronic liver disease and the need for liver transplantation, with up to 1 million people worldwide dying from HBV-related causes each year. While current treatments reduce the viral load, they don't eliminate it. Assembly Bio is developing a pipeline of therapies aimed at curing HBV. We spoke to John McHutchison, president and CEO of Assembly Bio, about HBV, the company's efforts to develop a new class of drugs to treat the condition, and what he's learned from his work at Gilead successfully developing and commercializing therapies for HCV. A note for listeners, as we were preparing to publish this episode, Assembly Bio announced plans to discontinue development of its Phase II candidate, ABH-2158, because of safety concerns. The company said it will focus on advancing ongoing triple combination studies, and earlier pipeline candidates. John, thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure being here.
0: We're going to talk about hepatitis B, assembly bio, and your pipeline of antiviral candidates to combat the condition. Perhaps we can start with HBV itself. What is it and, and how big a medical problem does it represent today?
1: Mm, yeah, no, thanks. It's, a, it's an important question, Daniel. So that's what the company, our company, Assembly Bio, is, is solely focused on trying to develop curative therapies for, for hepatitis B patients. But look, hepatitis B, is a, is a, it's a virus. It infects liver cells. And it's a significant problem. There are more than 250 million people infected in the world. That's more than a quarter of a billion people worldwide. Uh, and it's, it's responsible for close to a million deaths a year worldwide. Um, so it's an enormous problem, really. If you think about hepatitis C, Daniel, that everybody thinks of when you talk about hepatitis C, worldwide there's about 70 million people with hepatitis C. And here we have four times as many people worldwide with hepatitis B. So it is an enormous uh, problem. And what what happens when the virus gets into the liver cells is it causes inflammation and then scarring in the liver. And then eventually scarring can end up in cirrhosis. And then you have all the complications of cirrhosis, including liver cancer. So hepatitis B is the most common cause of liver cancer worldwide.
0: So, how long does it usually take for a patient to go from infection to that end result?
1: Decades, Daniel. Uh, you know, many people are infected from from birth, mother to child transmission, particularly in Asian countries, is is the common mode of infection. So, it's it's decades of. Um, of having this. It's, it's not being aware of it. It's not having any symptoms, really. So it's a silent disease. Again, very similar and akin to what happened uh, with hepatitis C. Most patients don't have symptoms until they develop the end stages of the disease and the complications of cirrhosis and the jaundice and, and so forth. So by the time you've got symptoms, really, it, it, it's rather late and too late and the damage has been done. So it's a, it, it's a slow, indolent, slowly progressive problem.
0: Well, how, how do people generally become infected and, and how are they diagnosed?
1: Yeah. So diagnosis is, is easy. It's a simple blood test. Uh, but the problem is that you have to uh, identify the people that should have the blood test. And that's the problem. If you've got a large cohort of pa- patients or people with the infection, that are unaware of it and don't have symptoms, uh, what's the reason to test them? We don't screen routinely worldwide for hepatitis B infection. So how is it transmitted? It's transmitted from mother to child and it's transmitted by blood. So uh, in that respect, it's sexually transmitted as well because there is some blood contamination during during sexual behaviour. Um, And uh, so it's those groups of patients who who get tested, but not the majority of people. So for here, for example, in the US, all pregnant women are tested for hepatitis B because we know that if you've got hepatitis B and transmit it to a child during pregnancy, that child's got a very high risk of getting hepatitis B and needs to be treated at birth. So that's why we test pregnant women. If you've got abnormal liver tests, if you've got a family history of hepatitis B, a family history of uh, liver cancer, somebody in the family with liver cancer, your're of Asian uh, ethnicity, these are the types and groups of people who are tested. But nevertheless, despite the fact that a test is simple and we know how it's transmitted and it's a simple blood test, you know, very, very few patients with the infection have been diagnosed. So you know, the estimates in this country are that less than five percent of people who have hepatitis B are actually tested and diagnosed and treated in this country. So we've got a lot of work to do there. And that's the focus of our company, actually. Once we can get to better therapies and curative therapies, we hope we'll be able to drive higher diagnosis rates, higher testing rates, and and then, you know, improved therapies should help us get there.
0: Well, what treatment options today exist and, and what's the prognosis for Patients with current therapies.
1: Sure. Um, the current therapies are, are direct antivirals. It's called nuclei, nukes. We call them nucleosides or nucleotide drugs. There's a number of them that are approved. Um, they are taken once a day by mouth. Uh, they are effective at suppressing the virus, but they don't cure patients, Daniel. So uh, treatment's lifelong. And that's been a barrier um, uh, to people wanting to be treated. In certain parts of the world, it's a barrier economically and cost-wise because you've got to keep people on therapy. And there is fatigue when you try and keep people on therapy forever. And when you stop the therapy, even after years of, or, or, of long-term therapy, the virus comes back. So, so, so you can't eradicate the virus. So it's a suppressive therapy, not a curative therapy. And again, that's what we're focused on here, why I joined the company, was to develop curative therapies because we think if we can do that, I think we can diagnose more people, we can produce better outcomes for them and I think we'll be able to change the guidelines of the societies and have more people treated. So if you take the current, the the second part of your question, Daniel, if you take the therapy, the nukes, and you take them daily, they lower viral load and viral load, HBV DNA becomes undetectable in many people. Uh, But it will come back if you stop the therapy or miss a week or go on a holiday or something like that. But we do know that if you control the amount of virus in the blood, you do improve the outcomes. And the outcomes, uh, rates of cirrhosis, rates of liver cancer, rates of complications of liver disease are all lowered when you reduce and make the viral load undetectable. And that's the goal of therapy. And that's what can be achieved with suppressive non-curative therapy right now. But again, you know, I'm sort of saying the same thing again. We have a greater opportunity if we can say to a patient, if you take this combination or this cocktail for 12 months or X months or whatever it might be, you have an X percent chance of being cured, being off therapy and not having to worry for the rest of your life. That's the goal. That's what we're doing at Assembly and trying to do.
0: Well, Listeners may know you from your work at Gilead, you Played a critical role in driving the acquisition of pharmacet and what would become Savaldi and Harvoni. These drugs would seem to give good reason for a belief that would we should be able to cure HBV. How analogous is HBV to HCV? Do they differ in a significant way?
1: That's a great question. Um, and the answer the the broad answer is there's similarities and differences. So I'll go through a few of these things, so Hep C is an RNA virus, Hep B is a, is a DNA virus. Uh, both viruses infect liver cells, um, both of them lead to inflammation and then scar tissue and fibrosis and eventually cirrhosis in some patients and all of those complications. So, so they are common to both diseases. Uh, hepatitis B is a DNA virus, so it does actually form a mini chromosome in the nucleus, and and that's a bit more difficult and problematic to get rid of that, to cure people, whereas hepatitis C doesn't doesn't do that. But I, I believe we will cure patients with hepatitis B, and I want to outline another similarity between the two diseases in the past that gives me uh, belief that our company and others working in the field will be able to do this so if you gave interferon which is a, a an injection once a week with lots of side effects if you gave that for a year to, to people with hepatitis c which we did in the past in decades gone by we cured about eight percent of people dan and if you give interferon with a nuke For a year to hepatitis B patients, you cure about the same percent, about five to seven to eight percent, depending on the study. So that that's that's an observation right there, that there's some similarities, and we can cure a minority of patients. And therefore, I believe we'll be able to cure hepatitis B.
0: What have we learned from addressing hepatitis C that informs your approach, if anything, to hepatitis B?
1: Yeah. So, um, look, for hepatitis C and, and also for HIV, we, we, we know that the principles of being able to cure hepatitis C or control HIV, which is very important for people with HIV, was that you need multiple drugs. They need to be very potent. They need to be safe because you're giving them to lots of people. Ultimately, the regimens need to be all oral because that allows you to treat more people effectively. It drives diagnosis and treatment rates and you need mechanisms that uh, have non-overlapping ways of attacking the viruses because viruses are very smart and you need different resistance profiles of those drugs. So if you stack them all on together in these antiviral cocktails again which was done for HCV and HIV you ultimately get there and that's what we need to do in hepatitis B. And that's why our company has focused on core inhibitors, which, which are, is a different mechanism with a different resistant profile, just safe so far and so forth, heading towards those cocktails of multiple drugs that will be required for hep B.
0: Well, let's talk about core inhibitors. This targets multiple points in the viral replication cycle. What exactly are core inhibitors and, and how do they work? Sure. Um,
1: So we call them core inhibitors. Some other uh, people call them capsid inhibitors, but the hepatitis B core protein is essential for the life cycle of hepatitis B. And our drugs, our core inhibitors, of which we have three in the clinic, um, and we just announced another one today preclinically, have two distinct mechanisms of action that are Separate, and they work upstream in the viral life cycle from the nukes or the current standard of care. So they're the first things that I would say. So, so if you, if if you, if you, the listeners can imagine a liver cell. Within the nucleus of that liver cell, there's this mini chromosome of hepatitis B or CCC DNA, we call it, and that's pumping out these transcripts, including RNA, and that RNA goes into the cytoplasm and then it's coated or encapsulated with, with, with a, an envelope and that envelope is made of the core proteins. Uh, so by giving our core uh, inhibitors we're blocking that encapsulation or that encapsulation and they were preventing the RNA from being converted to DNA, and then the DNA from being further packaged and then extruded from the cell to go on and infect another cell. So that's the first mechanism, and what we call the antiviral mechanism. And then, importantly, the second mechanism is that um, when a hepatitis B virus particle comes along to infect an, a new liver cell, which is happening all the time. Uh, the, the coating of the virus melts when it uh, hits the cytoplasm of the cell, and then the DNA gets into the cell, and then it goes into the nucleus to be, again, converted into this mini-chromosome, or CCC DNA. And we know that our core inhibitors block that formation of new CCC DNA. So we're working upstream when new virus comes into the cell to block the formation of new CCC DNA. And then we're blocking the encapsulation before that virus is converting RNA to DNA to be extruded from the cell. So two important mechanisms, which are complementary, upstream and separate from standard of care. So by giving our core inhibitors, we think we're blocking three steps in viral replication, rather than just one with the current standard of care.
0: Well, how does this differ from what current standard of care is doing? Where is current standard of care attacking the virus?
1: So the current standard of care is reverse transcription. So that is when the RNA is encapsulated within the virus, within the cytoplasm, the reverse transcriptase moves the RNA, turns the RNA into DNA. And then that DNA is further sent out and extruded from the cell. So that's what the current standard of care are doing. So when we give our core inhibitors with the current standard of care, we show greater reductions in DNA, greater reductions in RNA than you see just with the reverse transcriptase inhibitors or the nukes or the current standard of care. So we've already shown in our clinical trials with our lead uh, clinical compounds that that's what we're doing as well.
0: And you certainly seem to be focused on combination therapies. What's the reason for that? Why why are combination therapies so essential in treating a disease like HBV?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's just uh, just as I said before, it's very important that we will uh, these viruses are turning over every few hours and viruses are designed to escape a, a mechanism of a particular drug or a particular uh, attack. So, uh, Uh, As it was for HCV, as it was for HIV, we need to attack multiple different parts of the viral life cycle to, to be able to then completely suppress all evidence of the virus, get rid of all the CCC DNA that I've talked to you and described about today, and then at some period of time, withdraw therapy, and hopefully the patient
0: won't relapse and the virus won't come back.
1: And that's got to be the goal, and that's one of our strategies as well
0: your most advanced programs is a triple combination trial with a drug you developed, Vebicorvir. What is that and what are the studies trying to show?
1: Yeah. So Vebicorvir is our first core inhibitor. It's our most studied um, and lead compound. Uh, We have the largest safety database on that. We know it's safe. We know it affects DNA and RNA greater than core inhibitors um, and uh, we have our most data on that. So we're pleased with what we've done on that in the last two years. We are working on more potent core inhibitors, which we can talk about a little bit later, but that's one of our goals, of course, is to develop the most potent core inhibitors in the class. That, that is what we will ultimately want to do and what we are doing right now. Uh, but what we're doing in those triple combination studies is we're looking at the additional mechanism. So we've got a core inhibitor and a NUKE, And in one of those studies, we're looking at adding in an siRNA as well. And in another one of those triple combination studies, we've added interferon as well because interferon is the only immunomodulatory agent that's been shown, as I talked about before. Uh, to allow some people to be cured. So we're looking at two versus three drug combinations in those proof-of-concept studies to see if we can change the curves for the reductions in these viral transcripts and RNA and DNA and other things as well.
0: Ultimately, do you expect this to be put up against standard of care? We will always give core inhibitors with standard of
1: care. Um, You never... In the past have been successful either in HIV or HCV by giving monotherapy, resistance develops rapidly. Uh, So it would always be a combination cocktail, Daniel.
0: And is there any indication yet whether this has the potential to be curative?
1: So we've done one study with vebicorvir where we gave vebicorvir and standard of care for 18 months to some patients, and we showed the DNA and RNA could not be detectable for six months. And then we stopped therapy in those patients, and they all relapsed. So we believe we need more potent core inhibitors that are getting to preventing this formation of CCC DNA more effectively, and that's what our second, third, and fourth compounds in the class are doing. And then we're looking at the additional mechanism, as I've described to you today, and we've talked about in the triple combination studies.
0: You mentioned a a clean safety profile. Is there any concerns about increasing potency uh, at the cost of safety? I think
1: uh, when you've got a disease that affects tens of millions of people, safety has got to be up most, particularly if if you're doing... um, broad treatments so i think safety has always been key and important in these drugs as well so i think we can't abandon safety in terms of greater efficacy but the potency of the drug and the way we evaluate the compounds preclinically and and, and in animal toxicology and then in early human clinical tri- trials means we would have a good uh, a good understanding of the safety before we started broader or latter stage clinical trials the other thing we're doing daniel as well is um uh, In research, Bill Delaney, who uh, has been working on hepatitis B, our chief scientific officer, has a fantastic team here. So he's working on earlier, complementary, additional mechanisms to the core inhibitors that we'll bring forward uh, as we progress those programs as well.
0: You have a number of collaborations. I did want to ask you about the one you have with Pharma. What is that collaboration, and how does it fit into your broader strategy?
1: Yes, it's, it's a fantastic program. Thank you for asking. So Door Pharmaceutical it's a scientific uh, collaboration between the two companies. Door Pharmaceuticals was started by Adam Zlotnick at Indiana University. He's a professor there. And Adam was one of the scientific founders of Assembly uh, Biosciences, our company, um, where he developed many of the screen, uh, the methods for screening and and, and working on our initial core inhibitors. So Vebicorvia is, is a, in fact, one of Adam's initial sort of programs. So we've been close to Adam for, for a long time. Um, and I'm very excited, and the company uh, is excited as well, because we've known for decades, Daniel, that separate from the core inhibitors, uh, core protein within the nucleus of the infected liver cell interacts to maintain CCC DNA. So if we can develop and discover molecules that impair or disrupt that interaction between core protein in the nucleus of the infected cell and CCC DNA, we should be able to degrade or disrupt preformed CCC DNA. And that is the holy grail of curing hepatitis B. And that's why this program is so important to us. So if you think about what I've said today, we've got the core inhibitors, two mechanisms. They prevent viral encapsulation or viral replication in the cytoplasm, and they block uh, formation of new CCC DNA. This door pharma collaboration would address preformed CCC DNA. So that would be an additional step as well, and that would be very important. And if we can do that, and we can disrupt that, and we can have a safe mechanism of doing that without interacting with host factors, I believe that that's one of the most exciting things that we're doing, and one of the most exciting things for the field right
0: now. You mentioned earlier that the company is solely focused on HPV. But I'm, I'm wondering, are there broader implications for core inhibitors? And if so, are there ever plans to exploit that? So
1: the core inhibitors that we've developed for hepatitis B are specific for hepatitis B. So they won't work in other viruses But there are other core inhibitors or other capsid inhibitors that have been looked at for other diseases, other viruses where there's a core or a capsid. And there are capsid inhibitors or core inhibitors. You can use them interchangeably to some degree, those terms, as I've said before, for HIV, for example. So people are looking at some of those in HIV. So our compounds specifically for hepatitis B won't work for uh, other viruses but the core inhibitor program and paradigm can be used for other viruses as well. It's not one of our focuses right now.
0: As you look ahead to commercialising your therapies, what have you learned from Gilead's experience with HCV and making a value argument with payers?
1: Hmm. Um, look, you've got to show benefit from your drugs. You've got to show you that uh, over time, your uh, providing a benefit, you're affecting the clinical outcomes, you're affecting and preventing the complications of end-stage liver disease, the rates of cirrhosis, etc. And if we can do that more effectively and we can take people off therapy and show that the virus and DNA doesn't come back, that surrogate of DNA not coming back has been shown to be associated with those long-term distal clinical outcomes. And so the benefit can economically be shown there as well.
0: Although so the benefit believe... was never a question with uh, uh or Harvoni.
1: The benefit was never uh, in question because the virus was cured, correct? Right. It didn't Right, come I'm back. just
0: curious. I'm just curious if looking at that experience you you've learned anything in the way that's informing your approach when you start thinking about your your discussions with payers and others.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, we have to link our data in terms of the virus not coming back. If we can create the curative therapies that our company at Assembly is focused on trying to do, if we can do that and show that we can stop therapy and the virus doesn't come back for a regulatory uh, uh, period of time, an acceptable period of time for a regulatory approval, we have to link that lack of virus the long-term distal benefits, and that was done in hepatitis C, and we would plan to do the same in hepatitis B as well. So there is some similarity there.
0: John McCutcheson, President and CEO of Assembly Bio. John, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week,